Super Talk Mississippi media production. In the Mississippi Legislature, House Bill 728 funds health care for illegal immigrants. Call your legislator today at 601-359-3770. Ask them to stop House Bill 728. It's not too late. You can help stop this. Paid for by Building America's Future. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Kicking off a brand new week on this Monday after the Super Bowl, Rhino. Howdy, howdy. Well, what'd you think about the big game? I wasn't too terribly bad. I mean, it was a, a good game until. Ah, about the last, what, three minutes? Yeah. Went awry. That was something. That's really tough to make that call that late in that game. But I believe he said, yeah, I did it. Yeah, right? I mean, that's... But the problem is it was going on the entire game. Yeah, you're right. And then to make that call at that point, after having not made that call. You know... um, it seems like that's become more prevalent. That is, the uh, the interference. There's there's always a little aggressive checking. It seems these receivers are so big. Of course, they know where they're going, and the quarterbacks are so quick with the release, and they got all these routes down to such precision and timing. It's about the only way, <laughs> honestly. If the quarterback has time. They're likely to hit their target, and you're sort of limited, I guess, and they they get aggressive, but the reality is you can't see all that on every play. You'd almost have to have a referee tracking every single receiver, which would be impractical, of course. But I agree. It was kind of, I don't know, kind of hokey the way that deal went down. You could just see it at that point, what was going to happen. And sure enough, it did. You still, though, before they lined up for that kick, did you not think a little bit, this this guy couldn't miss it, right? I mean, it's so much pressure. Oh, my gosh. Your goater hero right there. But he nailed it. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was a great snap, hold, absolutely busted the football straight through the middle of the upright. So, it's better than a blowout. At first, though, it looked like it was going to be a very high-scoring affair. Still relatively high for NFL, I guess. Yeah, I gave up on my squares about two minutes into the third quarter. <laughs> on your squares. <laughs> uh, but the big game in the books, what would you think about the halftime? Kind of boring. I thought so, too. 
I mean, now that she came out and announced that she's pregnant with her second child, it makes sense why there was limited choreography or movement or yeah. lack of a whole lot of anything. Yeah. But when I first was watching it, I'm thinking, all right, finally a music artist is sick and tired of somebody, one of their dancers, becoming a meme. <laughs> Which I think goes all the way back to Katy Perry and Left Shark, where the the shark on the left just did not have an idea what was going on, didn't remember the choreography, probably a little inebriated, and they became a meme. And every Super Bowl halftime show since then, you've had one dancer, one background stuntman or whatever that's stole the show. Yeah. Well, with this one, they all just blended in, (laughs) except for Rihanna and her red outfit. What about those hazmat outfits that <laughs> the dancers on? They look like hazmat suits to me. What was that all about? Apparently, the Super Bowl people were a little hacked off at Rihanna because they didn't have a final set list until Friday. Okay. Is that a bit Usually, that a artists put lots and lots of time into their performance and the show they're going to put on, and this one... Looked and felt a little slapdash thrown together. Okay. I would agree. It, Yeah, it wasn't anything. I didn't find it entertaining. And I thought that the hazmat folks, some of their movements were a little provocative. I thought, if you, thought, if you listened to the lyrics and joined those with the, the movements, the gyrations, a little provocative. I would say the coolest part of the entire halftime show was they finally had a lighting director with the you-know-whats to use red lighting and UV black light. That always looks cool together. You just rarely see it because it doesn't look good on a camera. It doesn't look good on a stage if people are using their phones to take pictures. It's just it's hard to get that look to look right. True. Agree. I miss Prince and Tom Petty. What happened to the, that kind of halftime performance? Can't we just play music? Do we need the have uh, the uh, hazmat suits and the what's her name Janet Jackson props and that sort of stuff? Why does everything got to be Janet Jackson always gets the bad rap for that, but nobody seems to remember that Justin Timberlake ripped her top off. That's true. It was him. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the obligatory end of racism. Atop the end zones. You saw that, of course. Do you find it a bit ironic that you've got that message, that social justice message, prominently displayed on the field of play, or I guess just outside, but where the whole world can see it? Just a few yards away from a rather large contingent of minorities who are all millionaires in their 20s. I, I struggle with that. That's serious. And can we just play football? Why do we got to have social justice activism? Was there a national anthem? Was that aired? Or oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you had the now traditional Johnny Cash ragged old flag music video followed by the black national anthem. And then there was commercial breaks, more pregame, and then you had the national anthem, and then the halftime show. That was the music for that. Okay. So we have, like, multiple-choice national anthems now. I guess so. Hmm. Very unifying, isn't it? 
What about the commercials? I'm going to go ahead and there say There were it. a few decent ones. But there were. I thought it was better and, it, and honestly included less social justice messaging embedded therein. I called it with the M&Ms, though. It was just another Mr. Planners, baby Mr. Planners, whatever nonsense, but the whole chocolate-covered clams I agree. whatever her name is. That was silly. But the Dunkin' Donuts Ben Affleck ad, that may be the best one ever. I thought that was pretty good. What would you think about that? That was pretty good. I wouldn't say best ever. I think best ever is... Uh, one title that you give to Super Bowl commercials like the Clydesdales kneeling after 9-11. That's true. Okay. I Stuff like that. that. All right. I agree. Heck, I would even put the uh, the avocados from Mexico ad above the Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> where they mm. envision a world where Adam and Eve had an avocado instead of an apple. I remember that. that We're in good. the big avocado and everybody's naked. And back in his heyday, who could forget Michael Jackson and Pepsi? It's pretty good. Which the Pepsi commercials weren't bad this year with yeah. the different actors talking about, oh, it's nasty, or was I acting? you got to try it to find out. <laughs> $7 million, right, for a commercial this year. I wonder what the return on investment is for that. Which I only saw one commercial where they poked fun at that. Usually you have at least a handful of commercials that poke fun at the price of the commercial itself. But it was only the Gutfeld commercial where they got all dolled up and he looked like a king and then, hello, America, and then cut. These things are expensive. And then there it goes. <laughs> and AOC, you know who she is, of course, the congresswoman from the great state of New York. She's all bent out of shape about the ad that had a Christian message in it. Yeah, that he gets us ad. Yeah, he gets us. She slammed it as fascism. Well, everything she doesn't like is racist or fascist. It doesn't mean she actually understands what those words mean. She said, quote, something tells me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. That's what she said. I kid you not. Sounds like whatever intern is running her social media had one too many last night. <laughs> uh when you see stuff like that, you can't help but conclude that it's all about attention. It's the dopamine rush that you have so eloquently described. Oh, it's the same reason people were <laughs> wincing and moaning before the game even got started because of the ragged old flag music video. Oh, They've been doing that for, what, five, six, yeah, seven years now? At least. And people lost their minds like it's the first time they've ever done it. And, oh, my goodness, how could you possibly play that before a football game? Oh, right when the camera pans over the end zone, it says, in racism. <laughs> it is just unbelievable. Folks, we got Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer of South Central Regional Medical Center and past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association on middays at 11.05. A bunch more to talk about. We got a little montage to play for you that I think you'll enjoy. Stay with us. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
We're back in the Element Well Studios, 601-879-4395. That would be the C Spire text line if you'd like to join the conversation. So the, uh, the president was addressing a group of governors. Corrine Jean-Pierre, this was on Friday, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, goes on MSNBC to talk about yet another object that's been shot down out of the sky by the U.S. military. Meantime, Vice President Kamala Harris, she was in St. Cloud, Minnesota, addressing a group there. We've got some sound clips from each of these events that I think you'll find rather interesting. What I'm going to do is, uh, I'm going to be quiet, right? Yep. I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Mr. President. Eventually, I'm going to say something to you, okay? Why is, why is the American military shooting something out of the sky over Canada? Because it's part of a NORAD. There is a, the NORAD is part of like a, a part of a, it's a, it's a, what you call a coalition, a consortium. No, a so a pact, okay. exactly. And so that's why we were able to do that. Again, we didn't do it on our own. We did right. it in, in, uh, in, uh, clearly in, 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 in step with, uh, right. Canada. Canada. Uh, uh, about- no exhaust. No diesel smell. The bus has Wi-Fi, and even USB outlets next to every seat. I mean, come on, imagine. You can charge your phone on your way home from work. That's good stuff. <laughs> I told Governor Murphy once, every time I hear the President of the United States look around and say, where the hell is he? <laughs> Come on. Not what else we get done or passed, but what we, whether we're able to implement what we've already done. Uh, I know, I know it's a problem having to deal with all the money we're sending. Uh, I understand that, but <laughs> you don't think I'm kidding? I think it is part of a problem. Anyway, um, but uh, when I came to office, uh, half of you were planning uh, painful cuts. Your revenues are projected to re- be reduced by three percent. Well, um, you know, uh, that's why we spent three hundred fifty billion dollars. For the first time in history, and for every state, city, county, you shore up your budgets, your painful layoffs. We urged you to use the money, and most of you did, that you got from the Recovery Act. And uh, we provided $12 billion to address those mental health needs at the front end. There's more to come, but $12 billion. Um, but the point of this is we can do, we were able to do all this and still cut the deficit by a trillion seven hundred billion dollars in the last two years. Um, the largest deficit reduction in history. And you may have, we had somewhat of a debate on the State of the Union. Um, uh, and, uh, but I was glad to see everybody says we're not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. I noticed that happened, but I hope that's true. But that's what we, uh, anyway, look, uh, Okay, so let's recap what we got there, Rhino. First, we got White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre clearly, clearly stumped as to what is the organization known as NORAD, which I think's been around like since the 80s, 81 is what, what comes uh, to mind. 
I think it was right after I got out of college. And so that, of course, is the North American Aerospace Defense Command. And it is a joint effort of the U.S. and Canada to pr- protect and guard the skies above us. That's absolutely true. But she struggled with that. It's a, you know, a, a, a coalition, you know, yeah, a pact. <laughs> and the reporter tried to bail her out there. With Canada. Yeah, Canada. <laughs> She's getting absolutely lambasted. And, and, well, she should. You would think before you go on a nationwide news program, given the events which just transpired in an operation that involved NORAD, joint effort, U.S.-Canadian military forces, you think you'd know a little bit about that before you got in front of the world to discuss it. That's not the first time. Again, first time you got to give a pass. Well, been busy. A lot of stuff going on. But this is a regular occurrence with her. No excuse. Sorry. No excuse. Now, people will say, you're just being racist. No, I'm not. I don't care if you're polka dotted. Doesn't matter. This is an objective analysis of how the job was performed. Period. And then you got Kamala Harris. I think she inhaled before she did that one, right? The buses have USB ports. (laughs) You can charge your phone. (laughs) I don't know why I talk to adults like they're five-year-olds, but it happens every time I open my dang mouth. (laughs) It's just astonishing that the vice president of this great nation behaves that way in a public setting when she's speaking. Like just a giddy schoolgirl. And then the president is just mumbling. So keep in mind, folks, again, the audience there, the meeting that he was addressing was governors. And what he's saying is, if you recall, that he's boasting about all that money he sent him. There's nothing noble. There's nothing virtuous. Nothing innovative. Nothing creative. No accomplishment. And just going into debt to rain money out to the states. That's what happened. It wasn't like, well, look, we figured out a way to trim the budget at the federal level, keeping everything the same. Or maybe even improving circumstances financially so that we could allocate some money to the states to help them deal with a projected decline in revenues as a result of the pandemic. No, that's not what he said. That's not what happened. We just went into more debt. We just lapped it on to our ridiculous debt tab. Here, states have some money. And what do states do? They're all busy planning the expenditure of those funds, just as we have right here in Mississippi. How many times have you heard members of our legislature? And I'm not faulting them for it. I'm just pointing out that's what that's the way it works. How many times have you heard them say, well, ARPA money, we're working on our ARPA money, and all the, the citywide municipal leaders, oh, ARPA money, ARPA money. 
And then the president has the gall to brag about cutting the deficit. You created it. It is absolutely true that in 2020, 2021, that massive expenditures were enacted, supported by both parties. Every Democrat supported it as well. Well, that ballooned the deficit for those two years. Joe comes into office, and he immediately passes a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, produces a $2.8 trillion deficit, which is, in fact, $300 billion less than the prior year because of all the COVID CARES Act, Families First Coronavirus Act, which they all pin on Trump. And it's true he signed it into law. Absolutely. It's true that Republicans support it. But so did every Democrat. Why don't they ever say that? I never heard Joe Biden say, hey, look, Trump, don't sign off on that. Don't spend that money. Don't enact that CARES Act. Never heard that. So he comes in, and he's got to one-up him, does his ARPA, American Rescue Plan. Well, the next year he doesn't do it. And then brags about cutting the deficit. Like I've said before, it's like it's like digging a hole and then filling the same hole back in and, and claiming victory <laughs> somehow. Just be honest. That's disingenuous. You didn't cut the deficit. Cut it to $1.4 trillion, which, by the way, is still higher by about $500 billion than deficits under Trump pre-COVID, which ought to be the standard of comparison. Just take COVID out of the equation. That was just a whole dumb mishandling affair. But he won't be honest. Like, I cut the deficit. No, you didn't. You just didn't spend as much that you signed off on the year before. Be honest. And the American people, unfortunately, just lap it up. Many of them do. Not our audience because they're smart. But they do, and they just clap. Yeah, look at Joe. He cut that deficit. It's only $1.4 trillion. Oh, we spent 1.9 last year. Well, that was for the good of the people. We're coming back in the Element Well Studios. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back with you in the Element Well Studios. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Coming up at 11.05, Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer of South Central Regional Medical Center and past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Looking forward to that interview. We're going to discuss the latest bills in action from the legislature to address Mississippi's hospital situation. PERS is also in the news, closer to home as well. A bill that would have conferred more power to the legislature, more autonomy with respect to employer contributions, 
did uh, did not move forward. It's not moving forward. That was HB 605. Representative Charles Busby involved with that one. And so presently the uh, the PERS board has authority to increase the employer contribution rate. The legislature has the authority to increase the employee contribution rate. That is my understanding of it. Somebody wants to check me on that, but I'm pretty sure that is accurate. So this bill would have allowed the legislature to also have authority to increase the employer contribution rate. And the employee's rate is uh, scheduled was scheduled to increase in, in July of 24. And that's not going to happen. The board voted in December, the PERS board, to increase the the uh, employer contribution rate, which, of course, is funded by taxpayers. Those would be the state agencies and other public sector entities that have public employees that participate in PERS, that, who were enrolled in PERS. Presently, that contribution rate for employers is 17.4% of gross pay. That was scheduled to increase to 22.4%. And that's a roughly $345 million increase. So there were some board members that of course, voted against that. State Treasurer David McRae, Commissioner of Revenue Chris Graham, and retiree representative and former insurance commissioner George Dale voted against that. So apparently the, the board and Mr. Higgins, who is the executive director of are working together to devise a plan that everybody can get on board with, and that would that would that's Ray Higgins. That would involve delaying that increase and also creating a new tier for employees when they enter the system. And all a tier means is if you are hired uh, within the dates or after a date that establishes the start date for a new tier, then the terms and conditions applying to PERS in that tier would apply to those employees. So that might involve the years required to vest, the earliest retirement date, benefit calculations, etc. All of that is possible to be included in a new tier. So, as it stands right now, the increase in the employer contribution has been moved from uh, by the Board of PERS from October 1st of this year, 2023, delayed to July 1st of 2024. That's the plan at this point. So, 
look, PERS, the bottom line is PERS, like Social Security and virtually every other defined benefit plan in the nation, is facing significant financial challenges. That's just a fact. And the solutions, again, not trying to oversimplify it here, but it's it's just math. You either got to take more in, pay less out, or a combination of the two. Now, that could come in multiple forms. You could pay less out by by extending, increasing the age of retirement, as an example. You could, you could improve the financial situation by requiring more years of contribution into the system to vest. There's all sorts of, of ways to address this, and we're not talking about just implementing a benefit pay cut immediately. I think when a lot of people hear cutting benefits, that's normally what comes to mind. Oh, my gosh. My my purse check, my purse benefits are going to be reduced, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about looking forward-looking analysis, looking at just the actuarial analysis. How do you shore things up to make sure there's sufficient income on the revenue side to cover pension obligations on the expense side? So it's it's just a really lot of of uh, mathematical changes and adjustments to achieve stability. That's what it's all about. But, yeah, PERS is is uh, Mississippi PERS, like virtually every other defined benefit program in the country. He's got to face the music, and that's what they're doing. So the legislature and the board of PERS are at least showing signs of working together to do so. It's not an easy task. Nobody wants to hear, yeah, we got to increase the contribution rate. In this case, we're talking about a 5% increase that's borne by the taxpayers. That's the way it works, to, to try to get more revenue in to protect future benefits and make sure future benefits are funded. Something else about a defined benefit plan, I know a lot of folks, including me, would like to see the size of government shrink, and of course that starts with shrinking the number of staff, the number of public sector employees that the taxpayers pay for to achieve efficiencies so that fewer salaried, compensated employees are needed to operate the government. That's a positive from a a government expense perspective, but it's actually a negative on PERS and and the reason is because it's fewer people paying into the system to fund benefits, because it's a pay-as-you-go system, just like Social Security. So when you got fewer people paying in and more people approaching retirement or increasing the retirement roles, you end up with an imbalance, a financial imbalance that has to be addressed. So it's a, it's a catch-22 scenario when you think about reducing headcount in the state and its impact on uh, PERS. Very interesting. On the ceasefire text line, Ben from Madison, the president and secretary of defense need to address the balloon issue. Their silence proves just how incompetent this administration has been. The American people deserve answers from their government. Well, the vice president's worried about USB charging ports on electric buses. 
and Corrine Jean-Pierre doesn't know what NORAD is. That's That ought to give you a bit of a hint right there, should it not? It's, a, it's disturbing at a minimum. I, I agree, and of course the president's, he's too involved in traversing the country, bashing Republicans, still suggesting they want to end Social Security and Medicare, and touting his economic accomplishments, which are complete falsehoods. That's what we're getting. Yeah, very little coming out about this. And it's been, what, a week, week and a half since you had the toxic drain derail in Ohio? And It's true. Pete Buttigieg hasn't said a peep about it. Yeah. Right next door to his home state. Hmm. I agree. Not much uh, not much coming out of Buttigieg about that. Not much coming out of the administration with respect to... It's not just balloons, but whatever these objects are. That's what they're officially calling those that have yet been labeled as a balloon. They're just objects. Isn't that what you're hearing? That's what they're calling them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was some arguing on social media last night during the halftime show, actually over the semantics of an octagon, because an octagon is two-dimensional, but they were using the word to describe the objects. I saw that. That's the one that was shot down around Lake Huron, right? Correct. Yeah. Octagon. (laughs) An octagonal-shaped object. I got you. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, we're taking a break right here on Middays. Don't forget, at 11.05, Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer of South Central Regional Medical Center. Stay with us. Coming right back. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back with you in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. So I'm, I'm watching on the Business Channel. Uh, a collector is showing a Joe Montana jersey from the Super Bowl that apparently is being auctioned off. And he's displaying the jersey. Got latex gloves on, of course, you know, to handle the jersey to keep oh, his yeah. body fluids off of it. Interesting. So, you know, in Tennessee, they're actually considering legislation that would give the Monday after the Super Bowl off. It would be deemed a holiday, replacing Columbus Day. As an Italian-American, I'm offended by that. Just want you to know. What's up with this disrespect for Christopher Columbus in this country? Well, he was a colonizer. Oh, okay. Even though he never established (laughs) colonies. (laughs) <laughs> That's what always cracks him up. You can't call a dude a colonizer unless he started colonies. <laughs> Golly. We have a lot Pocahontas's of... Pocahontas' boyfriend. That was a colonizer. <laughs> Christopher Columbus was an explorer. <laughs> Absolutely. 
I just wanted to follow up on the PERS information that we shared. Yes, it's true. The legislature has authority to increase the employee contribution rate, the board, the employer contribution rate. So what was being considered is that the, that the legislature would also have authority to raise the employer contribution rate, not just the board. Two pieces, employer, employee, just like Social Security. So the concern passing this on is that there's a measurement of these defined benefit plans, and it's known as the full funding ratio. It basically just means what is the situation of assets in place the fund has to pay benefits of people in the system. Normally, you want to see that funding ratio around 80%. That's the rule of thumb in the world of actuarial science. Mississippi's PERS is 61%, essentially meaning PERS has the assets to pay the benefits of 61% of the people presently in the system. That's a cost for concern. Once again, two ways to fix it. Actually, three options. Increase revenue, decrease benefits, combination of the two. It's no different than looking at your personal checking account. I keep overdrawing every month. I'm not able to make ends meet. I either got to get more in, I got to spend less, or a combination. Same deal. Same exact concept applies here. So employees presently contribute 9% of their pay, employers, a.k.a. taxpayers, 17.4. The board voted in December to increase that 17.4 employer contribution rate to 22.4. As of October 1 of this year, they pushed that back to July 1 of 24. That's where it stands right now. Maybe something... So the board really needs to act here. Now, it's absolutely true they're limited on the revenue side to just the employer contributions, but maybe they need to get creative with respect to benefits. I'm not proposing that anybody that's currently receiving benefits sees a decrease, and certainly no one that's approaching retirement. But we got to get creative, I think, and I think the board's got to take charge here and do something to avoid a catastrophe, a financial catastrophe in purse. Same thing as Social Security. Now, Joe's running around looking at the federal level. Joe's running around once again claiming that Republicans want to sunset Social Security and Medicare. And he's referenced Senator Rick Scott. And there's somebody else that came out over the weekend, Rhino, I have to find it, a Republican in Congress that said, yeah, we need to fund those programs annually. Annually. Because right now they're mandatory spending, they're on auto drive. Now, Joe says no, that means Republicans want to end them. So what Joe's basically saying is, no change. The fact that these things are going broke, just keep in mind, folks, we're not going to change anything. 
Basically, what Joe's saying is they're going to go broke because we're not going to change anything. Just have to get over it. He won't tell you that, though. He just wants you to believe, yeah, they can just stay status quo and everything will be hunky-dory, folks. But the reports from the trust funds clearly indicate they're going broke. Medicaid scheduled to deplete its trust fund by 28 and Social Security by 2034. Not good news on that front. And they just want to take no action whatsoever. Dr. Mark Horn after Super Talk News and Fox News. Stay with us. And now, now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, hour two of the program in the Element Well Studios. Joining us now, Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer of South Central Regional Medical Center and past president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Welcome, Dr. Horn. Good to see you again, sir. Nice to be on. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. So uh, we've been talking quite a bit on the program about the state of health care, specifically the uh, the healthcare economy in the state of Mississippi, uh, Doctor Edney from the State Department of Health has has warned that numerous hospitals in the state are struggling financially, particularly those in rural areas, some of which where the situation is dire, and they're they're at risk of of shuttering those facilities, which would leave those regions of the state without a major healthcare facility. What's your take on all this at this point, Dr. Horn? Well, if if the healthcare system of the state of Mississippi were a patient and um, the people of Mississippi were the family and they were in the waiting room at the hospital and I were the doctor and I was going to come out and explain to them how their loved one was doing, I would have to say that uh, the patient was in critical condition, the situation was dire, and... Um, there was great risk of a really terrible outcome. And it's something that we've seen coming for some time. Uh, uh, The Mississippi State Medical Association, the variety of physicians, and uh, I know I'm friends with a variety of people. I'm an administrator at our hospital, uh, chief medical officer. I'm I'm familiar with uh, the hospital association and what our CEO goes through and our management team go through. We've been telling people for a long time, we've been telling our legislative leaders for a long time, this is a problem. It's getting worse. You need Something needs to be done. Well, here we are, and uh, the crisis has arrived. The patient is in critical condition, and it is time, far past time, to take care of the problem. So there are some legislation, some bills, I should say, that are still alive 
in the legislature this year to address the situation. I guess one in particular from the Senate, 2372, is a program that would provide $80 million in grants to hospital uh, based on license beds and some other information pertaining uh, to the facility. I wonder about that, though, Dr. Horn. When you look at the uh, the losses being sustained and, and the negative cash flow being incurred by Mississippi's healthcare institutions, this is a drop in the bucket, but this is still this this isn't a, a plan to sustain these hospitals on a long term basis. This might just be some sort of very short term fix for a handful of them. But heck, Greenwood Lafleur Hospital, based on the published audited financial statements, lost twenty million dollars last year. Twenty million on on about a hundred and five million of revenues. Well, heck, that's a quarter of this eighty million dollars for just one year. And so you're correct that these bills, um, crucial though they are, are simply a temporizing measure. Again, if we go back to the illustration of the critically ill patient, uh, when you've got someone, a patient who's critically ill and you're going moment to moment to try to get them to survive, you do what you can, even if you know that that's temporary, even if you know that's not going to win the war. We're trying to, uh, right now, we're trying to keep the patient alive. And in this case, we're trying to keep alive. I- I'm not arguing for the individual merits of any of these bills as a standalone. What I can say to you is we have a, a critical pros, uh, problem in the state of Mississippi that needs to be dealt with aggressively. There may be some temporizing measures, inadequate for the long term, though they may be. But if I worry about what's going to happen five years from now, but I die today, I haven't accomplished anything. So we've got some short-term work. We've got some long-term work. We've got both. Short-term, we've got to keep some places alive. Short-term, we've got to improve the the environment as best we can. And then long-term, you're, I think the lieutenant governor's right. Uh, he's on public record as saying we've uh, got to fix the long-term structural problems in our health care provision. One of those is to take full uh, advantage of to access all of the revenue that's available for our hospitals. I heard somebody say the other day that, well, Medicaid expansion, well, you know, you lose money on Medicaid patients, so why would you want Medicaid expansion? Well, if we get $0 for a patient today that comes to our doors that has no insurance, that has critical illness that needs to be taken care of, that we are legally required to do, and we are happy to do that, uh, then at least we would get something. Uh, currently, our small hospital here in Laurel, uh, licensed for 275 beds, if we get 130 to 160 patients, if we get 160 patients in the hospital, we're full of the brand. Um, but, you know, we write off several million dollars a month in free, uncompensated care. And I don't know of a business, ask any businessman you talk to, will they do that on an ongoing basis? And so we've got to take advantage of the monies. I'm a physical conservative, and um, I understand the arguments against um, the uh, Affordable Care Act. The challenge is it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. The last decade plus has proven that. And over a billion dollars a year has been passed on by the state of Mississippi um, and that's money that we could use. And even that won't solve the problem. We've got issues with insurance companies. Uh, I had a situation within the past uh, couple of months. 
uh, chart review came back to me of care that we had provided a patient two and a half years ago. And the insurance company agreed that the patient needed to be admitted, agreed to pay the money, paid the money, and now they've outsourced those charts to a third party and said, hey, we'll give you some money if you find something that we can deny retrospectively. And they've sent us a request, a demand, not a request, a demand for repayment of funds they paid us two and a half years ago for stuff we did two and a half years ago. Why is that legal? Hmm. Uh, yeah. We are getting continuous downgrade. We, we get, uh, we turn in, uh, charges for services rendered that we did, that we documented. And a computer system or automated reviews denies the charge code, downgrades it, and we have to appeal. So we have to hire employees, spend tens of thousands of dollars to, to, get them to do what they know they're supposed to do, but they don't do it because they know they can get away with it. Some people won't. So, Dr. Horn... So we got all kinds of structural problems. Yeah, something else that uh, we, we probably should uh, just share is that the disproportionate share payments, their acronym DISH payments, you're, I know right. you're very familiar with that, which are federal monies designed to, to cover uh, and reimburse Healthcare institutions, when they have sort of a, a an outsized amount of Medicaid, uh, and I think even Medicare patients as well, because of the low reimbursement rates. But there's some reductions scheduled to go into effect later this year, which which is going to put even further financial pressure on hospitals. Your thoughts? Exactly true, and one of the I, I, some of the machinations in this are complicated. But because of the Affordable Care Act, they took money away from one aspect on the guarantee that they would send the money through if you expanded Medicaid. So money that we, we lost money by not just by not expanding Medicaid, we lost money from reductions in payments that we would otherwise receive. So we, we've got a double winning and then things like you just mentioned. So it, I understand the principle but the reality, and look, the business community in Mississippi gets this. It's We've got um, some political leaders who I understand, I, I think I understand some of the politics, but the reality is bigger than the politics here. They've got to understand the reality is the health care for the people of the state that they love, that we love, is in dire straits. And... The leadership has to be taken, and it can't be kicked down the road. This can has been kicked as far down the road as it can be. If not, something is not done in this legislative session, we will lose some things that we will not get back. And some of that will be some lives. I can't tell you how many, but there will be lack of access to care in parts of the state, and people will suffer. Uh, some people will most likely die. If you look at the statistics, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but you just, it's just hardcore facts. And when that happens, you won't be able to bring that back. When you lose a hospital in a rural community, you will not bring that hospital back. Dr. Hall, we're up against a break right here. Can you hang around with us, sir? This is, a, I think, a meaningful and valuable discussion. Can you hang with us? I'll be happy to. We got a break right now in the Element Well Studios on Middays. Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer at South Central Regional Medical Center, is our guest. Stay with us.
93.3. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Top Mississippi. Dr. Mark Horn, Chief Medical Officer, South Central Regional Medical Center, past president, Mississippi State Medical Association. We're just discussing the health care situation here in the state of Mississippi. Dr. Horn, this seems to be uh, a nationwide phenomenon in that there are numerous health care institutions, some very prominent, well-known across the globe, that are reporting negative cash flow in their operations. And our situation in Mississippi may be a bit unique in that we have a dispersed population and we have a a lot of facilities that are located in rural areas where it's even more difficult to produce a positive cash flow because of the number of uninsured and number on Medicaid. They're generally impoverished areas. And that just means there's less revenue to obtain uh, from the patient customers, if you will, is this your way yeah. you're seeing it as well? Yeah, this is you're, you've got it exactly. The, the problem is widespread; it's, it's national. Um, I don't pay a whole lot of it. Well, actually, I do uh, pay attention to some of the international stuff. You, you look at Great Britain, and uh, they have tremendous trouble with the international terrible. Sale. Yeah, um, so there are problems across the globe. Uh, the problems in the, in the uh, United States are uh, widespread. They are uh, accentuated in Mississippi because uh, we are the poorest, most impoverished state in the nation by many measures. We are rural, which adds an additional challenge, as you not acknowledged and noted. So the other thing is uh, we're competing in a nationwide labor pool. So our nurses in Mississippi – uh, or for one example, and the, the entire healthcare team matters. And I've been talking a lot about hospitals. I'm, I'm a member of the MS, uh, of state, uh, state medical association. So as a physician, we face a lot of these issues in our private offices. But hospitals and, and physicians are hiring nurses and we're hiring clinical assistants and wages are up everywhere. Wages are up, but our reimbursements aren't up. So we're getting tremendously squeezed there. And unlike some businesses, we have zero pricing power. We don't have the ability to set our, our reimbursement rates when we're working with insurance companies, when we work Medicare, Medicaid, even private insurances. They set those rates. And since they don't adjust those rates and our, our expenses went up, we, there's nowhere for us to go. And hospitals in particular are mandated by law, and I'm not arguing that it's inappropriate, but they're mandated by law to provide services right. that are medically necessary. So we're mandated to provide a service that we – are underpaid for and then get it just it's just a nightmare from a business standpoint uh and that business unfortunately we talk about it that way but for us to stay for us to be here to take care of the critical care needs the critical needs of the people of mississippi we have to be able to pay our employees the 
advancing the health of the medical care system in the state of Mississippi is economic development. We get wonderful headlines every time there's a new steel mill or aluminum uh, plant or any kind of big industry, as we should. Those are great things for the people of Mississippi. But you know what's even just as important? Having a place to get taken care of if you get hurt on the job or if you get hurt going to work or if you get, if your family member gets sick. Those businesses won't come if we don't have a, uh, a proper and healthy health care system. So uh, our schools are important. There are a lot of important things to make it go. You can't just do the big businesses. Uh, hospitals are massive economic drivers of local economies because of the salaries and the wages and the security that allow people to live there knowing that if they get sick, they can be taken care of. So we've got a lot of work to do, um, a lot of uh, – and we've been talking about we We've been the canary in the coal mine, the State Medical Association, the State Hospital Association. We've been talking about this for years. To, And I've personally been told, well, just wait for the next – after the next election, we can do – no, it, it – We've waited as long as we can wait. Now the patient is critical. Now is time to act. Now is time to do something. It can't wait. So I, I, I did a little research. Uh, I'm actually moderating a panel discussion on this very topic here in Madison County uh, next week, which will include CEOs of three of the local hospitals and Dr. Edme from the Department of Health and also Tim Moore from the Hospital Association. And just doing some prep on that, I, I noted that Mississippi has, I believe, the fourth least uninsured uh, population, or, or we should say the fourth most uninsured is probably the best way to describe it. At about 11 percent, we're behind Texas, Florida, and Oklahoma, as I recall, all three states that have not expanded Medicaid. And, of course, the other thing that I think we've got to factor in to this, uh, Dr. Horn, that you know all too well in the trenches, we're the second least healthy state in the oh, yeah. in the country as well, slightly behind West Virginia. So we have an impoverished population. We got a high rate of uh, uninsured residents, and we have essentially the sickest population. That sounds like a a dangerous uh, elixir there, a, a toxic we elixir. We have a yeah. This is uh, the forest is full of dry tender, and we are striking matches all over the place, and the conflagration is going to be ugly. You know, one of the things that people don't often think about, and I've heard an argument made, well, these small rural hospitals, we don't really need them. Those patients can go to the bigger hospitals. Are those bigger hospitals, is St. Dominic's going to put on a new wing to handle all those new patients? They can't. Well, they can't get staff even if they did. You know as well as I do, they got beds right now they can't staff. So, so we're the same way in Laurel. We could see more patients if we could get more staff. I can't get more staff because I can't afford more staff. I can't afford more staff because the whole system is all messed up through massive amounts of regulation that regulate us into an inefficient position and don't pay adequately for the services rendered. Having said all those things, um, the loss of these rural hospitals creates a uh, further accentuates this poor supply of hospital beds. You can't you lose beds in the Delta, those patients that can receive a lot of those won't get patients won't get care and they'll suffer. Some will uh, suffer grievously and may die. The others that try to get into the hospitals in say Jackson or in Oxford or we're those hospitals aren't going to have the beds. So we, we just we're run out of ICU beds again. 
We've run out of uh, uh, standard beds. We've run out of people to provide the care. We need to take a com- comprehensive look. We need to, A, act emergently to save what we can, uh, what we can and, B, have things like this uh, conversation that you said you're participating in in the Madison area to get to the root causes of this thing that we've been talking about for years. And have we've kicked this can down the road. It's time. Yes. Um, what about some of the rural hospitals that are, I guess, general purpose or perhaps acute care facilities? What about conversion to critical access hospitals, Dr. Horn? Is that a, a possible uh, solution in su- to some extent? It will help some. There are many things that will provide some assistance. That is one that has uh, potential help. There is no... I, I, most everybody comes to see, somebody comes to see me and let's say they have a particular medical problem. Everybody wants a simple solution. Everybody wants to say, and they don't want to have to change their lifestyle. They want a pill that fixes it, one pill, and maybe not even that. They just want something to fix the problem and not have to worry about it anymore. Unfortunately, there's no simple solution here. So, yes, converted to rural, rural access hospitals to are uh, converted to critical access hospitals. That's one thing. Fixing the issues with DISH, Medicaid ex, uh, expansion, call it whatever you like. I, you know, I'm, I'm not hung up on the words. I'm hung up on the solution of pulling down uh, the money necessary to lubricate and make the system work. Um, fixing the issues with insurance companies so that they, uh, the, some of their more predatory practices uh, cease. Uh, so that they're held to account for uh, how they uh, some of the things that they do, which are just egregious. All these things matter, and all should be done. Um, it's going to take a lot of work. We need to do the immediate work to save to stave off the death of the patient right now, and then immediately turn our attention to these other matters. Yeah. So on the C, on our ceasefire text line, somebody said paying nurses eighty to one hundred twenty dollars plus benefits doesn't help these hospitals cries for help. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, we have not done that in Laurel. Uh, I know other places have made that decision to do that. So what we decided to do, we did have some surge pay, not the those dollars. Your 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 caller is absolutely correct. It's economically devastating to the bottom line to pay those numbers. But some of these hospitals face the choice of, can I get enough staff to stay open? Yeah. And to do that, they had to pay those numbers. Yeah, I've heard it locally, uh, in, in it fact, just, a lot. So It was a just a, a, a terrible decision and position we've been placed right. in. Well, we got to go. Dr. Horn, appreciate you uh, joining us today. Very insightful, sir, and I know you're in the trenches. You know a lot about this. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you so much. We're coming right back on Midday. Stay with us. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well Studios. Tom Petty bumping us into this segment here, final half hour of the program today, because it's Mondays, and Ricky Matthews, host of Coast View, 
will be, of course, hosting Super Talk Outdoors at 12 o'clock today. We're in uh, downtown Jackson tomorrow, Carter Jewelers, for a Valentine's Day. Looking forward to that. On the ceasefire text line, as you keep talking about PERS, you have failed to mention as state and local government employees most of these in the retirement system make as a salary is far less than in the public sector. I think you mean the private sector. For instance, my salary is approximately 35% less than the same job in the private sector. This isn't ever mentioned by you. I agree with you on many of the ideas and discussions you have. You do a great disservice in your discussions of PERS, as many of your point, points do not represent the entire discussion. Full disclosure, I'm a member of PERS, as is my wife, John in the Delta. Appreciate that, John. I, I think you're missing the point, though, honestly. I never made any analysis of the, um, I guess, the the, via, the valid, uh, the validity is the word I'm looking for, the validity of PERS as an offset, if you will, to lower compensation, base compensation. That's not the issue here. The issue is it's going broke. That's the issue. That's all I'm trying to say. The program is going broke. You won't hear that down at the Capitol, but they know it. I just shared with you the stats. 61%. funded. 80% is the benchmark for a healthy, defined benefit plan. That's all I'm saying. It's not whether or not PERS is reasonable. It wasn't an analysis of, well, yeah, these public sector employees... They have a public pension, a fairly generous public pension that those in the private sector do not have, but those in the private sector generally command a higher level of pay for similar jobs. So to work in the public sector, one gives up, I get it, as John says, one gives up, arguably, a higher rate of pay in the private sector, but in exchange for that, gets a generous pension. I get it. I agree. That's irrelevant to the core point that I'm trying to make that I think everybody needs to be aware of. It's not whether or not it's a justified benefit. That, that's a different matter altogether. The fact is, just from a pure economic, financial, actuarial perspective, it's in trouble. Just like Social Security, just like Medicare, just like virtually every other pension in this country, public pension in this country, some in much more serious financial straits than others. Illinois is one that comes to mind, Rhino. The last I looked at that, it's in big-time trouble. And one of the reasons why, not that that's happened here in Mississippi, but in the blue states, the core problem is they just keep increasing the benefits because it gets them reelected, and they don't address the need for additional revenue to cover those additional benefits. That's the fundamental problem. And so I apologize, John, if, if it came across as being opposed to PERS. I'm not opposed to PERS or whether or not it's a reasonable, again, justified benefit. And I clearly understand that it's one of the things you get by working in the public sector when you give up the opportunity for higher rate of pay in the private sector, but you don't get those sorts of of a generous benefits. Understand, that's the same thing at the federal level with the federal employee 
uh, benefits system. If you look at that, same deal. And and that's been around since the 60s. The um, If you look at the Federal Employees Health Benefits, the FEHB, for example, since the, the 60s, where some 70% of the premiums for health care insurance is covered by the taxpayers. But ostensibly... Uh, I guess it's not even ostensibly. It's 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 true that in general those employees receive a lower compensation relative to what they could receive in the private sector. It, it's just I'm just trying to convey the economics here about the plan, about the program. Same as Social Security. Joe Biden can say, "Hey, look, it's a done deal. We're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare." Okay, well then that means its fate is imminent. It's going to crash. You don't address it, it's going to crash. And every proposal and suggestion, short of the ones the Democrats want, which is just raise raise the contribution rate on the higher incomes. Actually, they don't want to raise the rate. They want to lift the cap, which still would only extend it a few years and only cover a little more than 50% of the shortfall. It's not the solution either. But it's popular politically, yeah, make those rich people pay for my retirement. They earned it on me anyhow, right? That's the Democrat plan. Republicans have said, hey, we need to sit around the table on an annual basis, or at least every five years, as Senator Rick Scott and Ron Johnson have proposed. Let's sunset these programs and let's get around the table and figure out a way to put them on solid footing for another five years. Joe Biden says, nope, we ain't going to do that. We're just going to let him go broke. He won't say that, but by inaction, that's precisely what you're doing. You're signing their fate. And that's what's happening in PER. So the legislature, rightfully so, gets involved this year with the board and says, we got to do something, guys. got to do something. Board says, well, we can't make the employees pay more. I know that's politically unpopular. Sure, we can make the employers pay more. But then that's on the taxpayers. That's who pays that. And even that is not a 100% surefire solution. It, it just is, uh, offers some, uh, addresses the, the issue to some extent, offers some relief for the trajectory, but it doesn't fix it totally. Your caller is exactly right, talking about Dr. Horn here. I own a private practice therapy clinic. We are controlled by insurance companies. We have not had a rate increase in 13 years. We actually get paid about a third of the rate a hospital is paid. We can't find therapists to work either, nor can we afford them, especially now therapist graduates with doctorate degrees. Heard the same thing. Randy Starkville says, what are the salaries of hospital CEOs? I don't know, Randy, but I can tell you, you could add them all up. And it wouldn't come close to being a smidgen of a fraction of an intestinal part of a drop in the bucket. I know that that's that's what you typically hear. Honestly, Randy, I'm a little surprised. That's what you hear out of the leftists. What about those hospital CEOs? It's all on them. I'm not justifying their pay, nor am I condemning it. I say the market rules. But you know what? Paying whatever the appropriate amount is to get the best person could provide uh, an incalculable amount of financial return. Those aren't easy jobs. 
And one that does that job well, controls cost, ensures that every dime of revenue is that they're entitled to is received and accounted for, navigates those treacherous waters, yeah, they're worth a lot. A lot. So, sure, you could pay them less and get less quality people. Well, then that probably just accelerates their ultimate demise. I looked it up. The uh, about the lowest I could find is one hundred and fourteen thousand up to about two hundred and twenty thousand for hospital CEOs. For hospital CEOs in Mississippi. In Mississippi, and I think there's some that make more than that. I I say that's irrelevant. I mean, we again, the market rules there. The boards, Which, to put it in perspective, in the uh, healthcare economy, that's just slightly above what pharmacists make. Right. Pharmacist average ninety to a hundred thousand in the state of Mississippi. Right. Some specialty maybe a hundred a quarter. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or if you're a pharmacy manager or something yeah. in a hierarchy of a corporate organization, you can make upwards of that. Peter. Right. Thomas and Greenwood says you don't need a good CEO if eighty percent of care is uncompensated. Well, you're referring to Greenwood Lafleur, where the mayor of Greenwood reported that. And Thomas, I know you're uh, you're opposed to Medicaid expansion as are, are a lot. And I, at full disclosure. Uh, I've written articles in opposition to, and I did a split-screen debate in 2013 when it was first available under the Affordable Care Act in opposition of it and called for block grants as an alternative. Uh, The system implemented in Arkansas is one that we should consider, where they take Medicaid dollars and use those to uh, purchase private insurance for the uninsured population that would otherwise be eligible for Medicaid under expansion. So basically, Thomas, best I can tell you, what you say is if a person shows up at the hospital, and it's a serious question that I think all of us ought to think about, is if you show up at a hospital with some emergent problem, stroke, heart attack, usually the top of the list. I know from a triage perspective, Rhino, I think... You're aware of this. That's number one, right? You come in with chest pain, stroke, boom, you're going to the top of the line because time is of the essence. Yeah, seconds matter in that instance. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody stops and says, hey, can you pay? Because if you can't, you got to die. I mean, that literally is what happens. And that's not hyperbole. It happens. Coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Middays, final segment before Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Mississippi Outdoors. And to John in the Delta, I want to apologize, John, if, if I sounded a bit terse and in short with you. That, that wasn't my intent, and I, I apologize for that. But again, I, I'm, I'm not condemning PERS as a concept, as a system, or, or public pensions, other than it's clear, and it's been clear since they were 
they were established that defined benefit programs just don't work economically unless you can be assured that you will always have a sufficient number of active members paying in to the system to cover the benefits of those who were retired going out. Yeah, the equation only really balances if you have expansion every single year. Right. And what we know is our population is aging, we live longer, and we got fewer workers. And that's just, again, that is presenting serious challenges to all these defined benefit programs. When it bears repeating, and I apologize for repeating it again, but it, the, the best demonstration of what we're talking about here is when Social Security was enacted in 1935, the ratio of active workers to expected beneficiaries from that point, current beneficiaries, and then from that point on for several years, was about 100 to 1, 100 people paying in, funding the benefits of one person. Now it's about 1.5 to 1, and that gap is closing rapidly. Well, it's pretty clear that the amount paid in by one and a half people is not sufficient to cover permanently the benefits of one person. It's going to catch up. That's where we are. It's and it's purse. It's no different. So the good news is you've heard our political leaders boast about cutting the size of government. We've got fewer employees now in our state government than we did a few short years ago. Hey, that's great. Only one problem with that. We got fewer people paying into PERS to cover the benefits for the people who are retired. What you pay in doesn't cover your benefits. It covers the benefits to people who are receiving uh, payments, checks from PERS at the point you're working. Just just wanted to clarify that. So I apologize for that, um, John, if it appeared that I was being a little bit curt with you. Um and then the other thing is with respect to CEO pay, let's just take that off the table. That That's not relevant to the massive problem we're talking about. If you cut all of their pay to zero, that would maybe take care of about 10% of the losses for one hospital. That's about it. One hospital. We got, what, 122 in the state, most of which are upside down. And while... Proponents of Medicaid expansion, many may say, yeah, if we just did this, this would solve the problem. I don't believe that for one minute. Would it partially address it? Maybe. I think some more work's got to be done on that. And, again, I, I call on those who oppose it, and I'm not taking a stand either either way here. I've told you. I've written articles in opposition to it. I've done television debates in opposition to it. Spoken to many people about it. But I call on those who are really dug in. Are you willing to exit base Medicaid? If Medicaid expansion's bad, well, then by definition, base Medicaid's bad. Let's take the state of Mississippi out of that. I would like, I wish I had Dr. Horn back. I'd like to ask him what would happen if we ended Medicaid, base Medicaid in Mississippi? It infuses about $5.5 billion from the federal government, just under a billion from the state government. Just take that out of the equation. No, no more reimbursement. 
What we should be working on is how do we get people off of Medicaid in Mississippi? How do we do that? Economic development, jobs, jobs that are with companies that provide group health insurance so their employees aren't on Medicaid. That's what our focus ought to be. How do we do that? Well, we've already discussed the brain drain, spending all this money on education. Then we send them to college. Many of them do. I think it's clear. Rhino, you've agreed. Our educational curriculum is built around getting people to college, preparing them for college. They go to college, they get a degree, they leave. So the people who have the best chance of working for those companies where they're going to get good quality private health insurance and pay their bills and reimburse the providers, they go to the other states. They get the benefit of that. How do we keep them here so they start companies, work for companies that enroll them in the private coverage, which is what they so desperately need, these hospitals do, and providers to make ends meet? That ought to be the goal. That's the solution. We're out of time here today. I'm sorry, folks, but we got a lot more to talk about for the rest of the week related to this subject and many, many more. Hope you have a good day. We're at Carter Jewelers tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.